You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to our third session on Augustine's Confessions. I am Dr. Liz Klein, a professor here at the Augustine Institute, and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. John Seahorn. And so we've already done two episodes where we kind of introduced the Confessions and Augustine, his time and place. Uh, in the last session, we talked about Augustine's um, writing and autobiography, what it means to talk about yourself and how we can apply that. Uh, and now we're going to talk about Augustine's intellectual conversion, which is a really important part of the narrative of the Confessions. Uh, how he kind of sorts out the different religious options of his day, the different doctrines of his day, uh, and that coming to understand the truth is really essential to the confessions. Uh, and I was thinking as, as we were preparing for this session, I, I wrote a review of a book on a popular book on St. Augustine. I won't mention the name because I don't want to, you know, anyone to be too scared away from it. But uh, I was reviewing this book and the, and the author said that you know, when he read Augustine the Theologian and read his doctrinal works that really he just thought Augustine was drawing boring. But then when he read the Confessions and saw the heart of Augustine and the road-weary saint, then he was really attracted to Augustine. And I think it's important that we understand that this is the same Augustine, uh, that Augustine the Theologian is also the Augustine who wrote the Confessions, because Augustine mm -hmm. the Bishop wrote the Confessions, <clears throat> right? It wasn't like, you know, young whippersnapper Augustine with lots of emotions and feelings wrote the Confessions and then boring old theologian Augustine <laughs> kind of carried him off to the end. So, so what an intellectual conversion is still really essential uh, to many people today. So trying to go through those those turns intellectually, talk about some of those doctrinal differences, why they matter to him and why they should matter to us. So that's what we're hoping to look at. So, yeah, and I, I think that point, Dr. Klein, about why they should matter to us is is really worth kind of dwelling on because I think it is true, you know, in keeping with the author of the unnamed book that you mentioned. <clears throat> Kind of seeing the heart of Augustine and and like the you know the question of his loves, which he talks about so mm -hmm. much in the Confessions. In a lot of ways, I think for us that's really easy to latch on to, right? Um, and you know, for for all of the emphasis on um, expertise and education and so forth in our culture, we actually live in a very anti-intellectual culture. And and that's actually one of the reasons why I think it's so helpful to read the Confessions uh, and to read it carefully and sympathetically. Because what you find is that Augustine's kind of, um, you know, uh, profound wrestling with these philosophical problems that can seem difficult and alien and, and, um, and unrelatable to us um, are crucially important to him. And for him, they're, they have everything to do with the mm -hmm. conversion of his heart. Because for Augustine, it doesn't matter how passionately you love something. Like Augustine has no problem believing that whatever you love, you probably love it passionately. Like mm -hmm. Augustine's all about that. But the whole point for him is that if our loves are not ordered in accord with the truth, mm -hmm. they are going to leave us empty. Right. Right. They're going to disappoint us in the end. And that's why these questions that can, that can seem, like you said, so kind of dry and mm -hmm. academic um, are actually of central importance to Augustine. Because, I mean, throughout the Confessions, there's no question that Augustine is in love. It's just, what is he in love with? You know, well, he says, I was in love with love. I was in love with love, right? Yeah. <laughs> like he, and that's, that's threaded throughout the Confessions that he is, he was a person who had the great capacity for 
you know, emotion, passion, desire, uh, mm-hmm. and but ordered wrongly, that was to his ruin. He's very clear about that. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of truth and love go together is um, is almost self evident for him. And when I talk about kind of trying to get a picture of this great saint, you know, who is Augustine? Most of us, including myself, will never read all of his works. Uh, so trying to understand him, I, I often think about the iconography of Augustine or the images of him. Usually, he has a heart a book and a bishop's mitre. Uh, And that really is, encapsulates his whole person, right? Mm -hmm. He was a a deeply learned person uh, who read and wrote, and he was also a deeply passionate person uh, who loved, and he was also a bishop. Um, And all those things put together is what make him such a great saint and really come together powerfully in the confessions, I think. So the first kind of intellectual turn uh, that we're going to talk about from the confessions is when Augustine joins a group called the Manichaeans. Uh, some people call them the Manichees. I'm not actually sure if there's any consensus on which is correct. I like saying Manichee more, so let's do that. Okay, Manichees. Uh, so Augustine joins the Manichees. This is one of those parts of the confessions that for a modern person is hard to understand because we have no idea who these people are. Uh, It's not a religious group that has survived to the present day. Uh, And so this can be confusing. Who are these people? Why did he join them? What was attractive about them? Mm -hmm. So we thought we thought we'd say a little bit about the Manichees. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think to kind of approach that question of what was attractive to Augustus about Manichaeism, we have to back up a bit and ask why he wasn't already a Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his father um, was not a practicing Christian uh, in Augustine's youth, although he was baptized into the Catholic faith on his deathbed. Um, but Augustine's mother, Saint Monica, uh, was very much um, a devoted Catholic and was keenly interested in passing on her faith uh, to Augustine. So, Dr. Klein, what went wrong? Shouldn't pray hard enough. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not true. If anyone knows the story of Saint Monica, uh, yeah. So in Augustine's time, it it was it wasn't universal to baptize uh, children as infants, although it was a practice commonly known. Augustine will deal with that later in his life. So Augustine considers himself from the beginning to be a catechumen. Uh, mm-hmm. So he he received sort of the right of entrance into the catechumenate as a baby. He mentions that, I think in book one briefly, that he was salted as a youth. That reference would probably kind of go over our heads now. But that was part of the right of entering the catechumenate in Augustine's time, was that the catechumen would receive salt, uh, sort of evoking the idea of being the salt and light of the world, a kind of preserving tool, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So Augustine kind of loosely considers himself uh, a Christian, but one reason why people would not have uh, been baptized was a kind of uh, fear of sin, uh, because at that time, you know, you kind of got only got like one chance to fall into serious sin and, and then have penance to come back. And so sometimes people worried if you baptized, especially a young man, uh, that he was going to fall into serious sin and then be in trouble uh, vis-a-vis the church. Augustine uh, doesn't doesn't actually like this interpretation. He later kind of reflects a little bit on the confessions, how his life might have been different if he had been baptized earlier. Uh, he talks about his missed baptisms. No. Yes, (laughs) it talks about his missed baptisms, uh, both in book one and book five. Uh, But that's kind of where he's at. So kind of um, loosely understands himself as Christian, uh, but he hasn't taken the steps to be baptized and enter uh, fully into the church. That's right. So um, the reason that it's important, though, to to know that, um, you know, uh, St. Monica had managed to sort of impress on Augustine um, the importance of Christ um, this really comes up in book three. So in book three, when Augustine is, I, I want to say, 19 years old. Is that 
sound right? I think he's 19 when he reads. Uh, he reads a work yeah. um, by the the Roman uh, lawyer and uh, philosopher and statesman Cicero, a uh, very famous um, figure from the first century BC, uh, reads a work that's actually lost to us called the Hortensius. Uh, and the Hortensius um, actually really um, reorients Augustine um, because he realizes that he'd spent so much of his time learning um, in his education, uh, how to be a good speaker. That was really what Augustine uh, was trained to do, was to be a persuasive rhetor, a persuasive uh, uh, speaker. And that, that he used this not to pursue truth, not um, for the sake of the common good, um, but instead to pursue his own ends. Those lusts that we talked about earlier, right? The, the lust of the flesh, um, food, sex, whatever it is, the lust of the eyes, Right. Um, sort of he talks a lot about um, going to the theater and being sort of enamored with illusions. We might think about inordinate amounts of time spent on entertainment. Right. Um, or on on things that, you know, might be mildly interesting, but have nothing to do with us, with the truth, with our lives. And then finally, with with um, success, with attaining um, a, a reputation, fame, notoriety. And uh, so he reads this work by Cicero. And, um, and he realizes, I've been wasting my time. What I, what I really need to be doing is seeking wisdom, seeking the truth. And this was a really important moment for Augustine. And he actually says um, in book three uh, that um, he says, only one consideration checked me in my ardent enthusiasm about this work by Cicero, that the name of Christ did not occur there. Through your mercy, Lord, my tender little heart had drunk in that name, the name of my Savior and your Son, with my mother's milk, that tribute to, to Monica's faith. And in my deepest heart, I still held on to it, right? Maybe not on the surface, but in my deepest heart. He knew that the truth was to be found in Christ, and he didn't find it in Cicero. So he turned to the scriptures. But what he found in the scriptures, especially in the old Latin translation, this is um, before Jerome, St. Jerome had translated the Vulgate, Latin translation of the Bible that would become standard uh, in the church even up to today. Um, this old version that, that Augustine had really was uh, pretty rough around the edges, right? It, yeah. uh, especially to someone trained in really good, eloquent Latin. Um, the Bible looked kind of barbaric. It yeah. looked, it looked um, maybe not like where you would find deep wisdom. And this sort of negative encounter uh, with the Bible opened himself up to the blandishments of this group, the Manichees. Right. So I was going to say, enter the Manichees. Enter the Manichees. <laughs> Augustine right. is kind of open to the idea of pursuing wisdom, but he's not satisfied unless he finds the name of Christ. Uh, he's kind of read scripture and found it undignified compared with the prose of Cicero. Uh, and so he finds this group, uh, the Manichaeans, who are what we might call a syncretic religious group. So they kind of have aspects of uh, many different uh, religions, but are in some way quasi-Christian. Uh, but Manichaeanism is, is a dualistic religion. Uh, and so it believes in sort of a permanent force of good, the God, the, the God of light, and then a permanent force of evil. Uh, and the material world is in that category of evil things, basically. Mm -hmm. And so somehow through a cosmic mishap, the world of light uh, has become uh, trapped in bodies. Uh, and so kind of bodies and material things are to blame uh, and the Manichaean elites were therefore ascetics, uh, meaning that they kind of um, 
eschewed material things. They were celibate. They only ate certain kinds of food uh, in an effort to release the light, uh, the light of God that was trapped in the darkness of the world. Uh, and so that's a very kind of basic scheme for understanding uh, Manichaeanism. Yeah, but it had um, some pretty ill effects on on Augustine, right? Um, you know, so so first of all, the, the Manichees do talk about Christ, and, and as Dr. Klein mentioned, um, they're syncretic, meaning that they bring together aspects of different uh, different religions, including Christianity. So he hears the name of Christ. Oh, Christ is there. That's good. But but he says he actually talks about the food that they served, right? He's he's yearning for spiritual food, and it's got the right labels, mm-hmm. right? It says Christ, Holy Spirit. Oh, this is really good, right? But he says that, um, well, in contemporary terms, that it was a nothing burger, mm-hmm. right? That the, they were illusions that they served up to him on uh, on these platters yeah. with the right labels on them, and I think that this is such an important point for us today. Um, it's so easy to find things that present themselves as Christian, uh, or even as Catholic, mm-hmm. um, and yet that are not in line with, um, with the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, and, and this was something that Augustine was lured into. And there's a kind of interesting in that idea of being like fed bad food on, on a fancy platter. Uh, you have a kind of anti-Eucharistic evocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was a lot of eating rituals involved in Manichaeanism. Uh, and so the idea that sort of um, what ap- what appeared to be good was actually false food uh, compared to what he was going to get in the church, which didn't necess- wasn't on a gold platter, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's right? It didn't yeah. necessarily seem yeah. that sophisticated, that fancy. It wasn't up to Augustine's standard and yet was was the true food. Uh, and this you have, you know, represented by Monica, who uh, as many children in our day, right, pious Monica was not sophisticated. She was not the kind of person Augustine necessarily wanted to see uh, people to see as his mother as hanging around him. In fact, Augustine tried to run away from his mother. He tricked her and then went sailing off to Rome, Bad boy. Uh, you know, to try and get away from her. And then helicopter mom Monica follows him uh, to Rome. Augustine appreciates this all later. Uh, but there, uh, there is a kind of lesson there uh, about mm-hmm. being attentive to what is true or what just appears to be true uh, or what is what is good and then what just appears to be sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Augustine liked the kind of things and did the kinds of things that other people admired. Mm-hmm. And Monica didn't. Uh, and so th- that's that's all the this is another way of saying that Augustine's intellectual conversion is tied to his moral conversion. The idea of coming to see the truth also required a kind of renunciation of fancier things. Uh, and so you can't really separate out Augustine, the conversion of Augustine's heart with the conversion of his mind. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and also kind of connecting the intellectual and the moral aspects here. And Augustine talks about this himself, that um, even though, as Dr. Klein mentioned, um, the sort of higher ups, the elite, they're actually called the elect among the Manichees, were ascetical, practiced celibacy, only ate um, a little bit of certain kinds of food. Um, for kind of regular Manichees, like Augustine always was, called the hearers or the auditors, uh, they didn't have some of those expectations. And um, what Augustine found was that when he saw himself and the world through those Manichaean eyes, that, well, there's this there's this good principle of light over here, and then there's the darkness, and that's evil, and it's all mixed together in my body. Well, then the bad things I do with my body aren't really me. 
mm-hmm. right? I can attribute them to that that dark principle that's that's not really me, mm-hmm. right? The real me is somehow trapped in this in this body, and I think that this is another. Mm-hmm. And that we can relate to this idea that somehow the real me can be separated from my actions. Whereas what does our Lord teach, right? That good trees bear good fruit mm-hmm. and bad trees bear bad fruit. So you can't just sort of bear bad fruit and say, well, but deep down I'm a good tree. There is also this idea of, even though the Manichaean system is kind of strange to us, uh, the idea of blaming evil on the body, mm-hmm. which was Augustine mm-hmm. says explicitly, he got to scapegoat his evil on the body. Well, mm-hmm. it's not my, really my fault that, you know, I have a mistress because mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do? I'm in this evil body. I'm like a, a light trapped in a body. So it's the body's fault. I mean, although not in the same way as Manichaeanism, these intellectual challenges are still with us today mm-hmm. because there uh, there is a tendency to say there is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as evil. There is only matter. There is only what you see. There is only the body. And any evil that happens is the result of uh, certain social or material forces on people. And that and that's all there is. Uh, and so that, that really closes you off to the kind of conversion that Augustine experiences. So he has to be healed of that false vision, especially of the problem of evil, where suffering and evil comes from, in order for him to recognize, oh, no. Mm-hmm. I I have chosen to do what is wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. This isn't just a, a matter of my body. It's a matter of my will. Uh, and so that in- conversion is very important, again, with the moral dimension and the intellectual going so, together. So tell us how he gets there, right? Because he doesn't go straight from being a maniche to being a Catholic. Right. What, what were some of the kind of intellectual... Right. So another group we want to talk about in this sort of intellectual turning away from Manichaeanism, and I guess it's a Manichae for a long time, I think nine, nine years, years yep. uh, is partially through the books of the Platonists. So this is another, especially book seven, that people might find a little difficult as a highly philosophical book. Uh, and so the Platonists were a group of philosophers, you probably heard of Plato, uh, in Augustine's time, and he's reading the Neoplatonists, a sort of new revival of Platonism in his own time. He, he finds some of these books translated into Latin. Uh, he reads them, and this is a really important turning point for him intellectually, because he realizes uh, through reading them uh, a lot of a lot of different things. But I think one of the most important thing he realizes is uh, that God is not a body. Uh, God is n- not made up of matter. Because previously he'd only had these two, ca- you know, these categories of material things in order to operate in, and so for him to understand. Because just to clarify, you're, you're saying that for the Manichees, even the light principle, mm-hmm. the good God, was somehow extended. Right? Mm-hmm. He was, he was so, you know, you might think of like a wispy kind of uh, reality, yeah, and this, but they, still yeah. material. This is difficult for us to retroject because we're used to talking about spiritual things. Uh, but a lot of ancient philosophers, they thought of even a light, light or, or spiritual realities as being like a super fine material that you either couldn't see or was invisible. It uh, was very light. And that's how things like raised up to heaven. And so this was uh, a paradigm that Augustine was kind of caught and he even reflects on it in book one of the confessions. And, and we might think like, who thinks about that now? Who thinks that way now? <laughs> uh, but actually, I think that we are kind of coming to that point, as I said, Augustine's uh, society is sort of um, coming out of paganism into Christianity and we're going kind of the opposite direction. But, you know, I had a roommate in college who who asked me, like, how does God, like, how does he touch the material world? Like, he doesn't have a body or how does that work? And Or, or like, when we die, you know, I've, I've read that when we die, our body weighs like two grams less the moment before and the moment after. Not true. And that's like the weight of the soul. And you're like, what? <laughs> but but that's but that's what happens, you know, when we get out of the habit of 
understanding that God is transcendent, that God mm. does not have a body, God not, is, God's not made of matter. Uh, you know, we slip back into these ways of, of only being able to interpret things in the horizon of the material world. Mm. And I think we can see the detriment of that way of thinking, even though Augustine's problem is somewhat removed from us in, in philosophical categories we may not be familiar with. Uh, the idea of coming to terms with God's transcendence is a major uh, feat for anyone who's able to do it. And it's very important that we understand it because it keeps our horizon in the right place, namely beyond what we can actually understand. Mm. And even Christians, we have the bad habit of thinking of God as a body, of thinking of God as like a big dude in the sky who answers our prayers sometimes and sometimes not. Like, what are you doing up there? Uh, you know, even if you're devout, those, those images recur to you. And that really does stunt our faith. Uh, because it means we only have faith in something that's equivalent to like a person times a thousand and not actually God as he is, right? Person <laughs> yeah. times a thousand. I like that. Yeah, person times a thousand. Well, and, you know, to kind of connect it back to what made Augustine slip into manichaeism in the first place, right? The Platonists are extremely helpful for him in coming to grips with the transcendence of God, that God really is beyond the categories of the world that he is, that he has created. Um, and the Platonists are, well, very proud of mm -hmm. having realized this truth. And Augustine gives them full credit um, and, and even is sometimes like a really charitable grader <laughs> in um, how he understands the truths that they've, that they've come to about God. But he says there was still something missing. And interestingly, it's the same thing that was missing in book three mm -hmm. when he tried to read the Bible and went to the Manichees. And, and so, you know, friends, if you try to read book seven and find yourself getting bogged down, just stick with it because the end of it's very beautiful. Because what he discovers at the end or what he says at the end is that what was still missing was the humility of the mediator, the humility of Christ. And, and imagine how much greater the humility of Christ is the more we realize the transcendence of God. That this isn't just um, a person times a thousand sort of coming down to the level of regular people like you and me. This is a God who from eternity is beyond space, beyond time in this perfect exchange of Trinitarian love who out of that same love empties himself, right? And, and it's only that humility of the mediator that can actually be an, an, uh, an effective remedy for Augustine's pride. Um, and so now when he looks at the Bible, when he looks at his mother, instead of seeing things that are embarrassing, he actually sees something incredibly beautiful. He sees reflected the, the humility of the self-emptying Christ who does this for our salvation. But notice that until he got some of those intellectual problems ironed out, he couldn't fully appreciate the beauty of the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason why I think it's so important for us to grapple, you know, with Augustine, with these questions, because even as, as you were saying, Dr. Klein, even the devout among us, you know, we go to mass, we, we go to confession and so on and so forth. It's so easy for us to relegate our faith to like sort of one part of the pie of, mm -hmm. our, of our life, right? It's, it's a big piece. It's an important piece, but it's only a piece. And if we really want to understand the faith for what it is, um, we need to realize that the way we look at God, who we think God is, what we think the world is in relation to God, how we understand ourselves mm -hmm. in relation to the world and God make a huge difference. Because if we're not vigilant about that, if we're not loving God with our minds, if we're not um, allowing the seed of God's word to grow in, um, in us in understanding, then we're going to slip into the default mode of our world. And, and I think that that default mode is materialist. I think it's consumerist. 
And those are the things that are going to shape us in ways that we don't even recognize. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying, it's going to stunt our faith. And so that, yeah, that shift from this kind of a dualistic religion that had a good answer to the problem of evil and then encountering the Platonist is truth. Okay, God is transcendent, but then, but then what? Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. Then what? But yeah. then what? So yeah. Augustine kind of had a comfortable quasi-Christian, the name of Christ is there. We got a system. We kind of got evil under control. We know it's what to saying, wait, no, that was all wrong. But that and that and that intellectual conversion, that is when grace really comes crashing in on him. Right. Augustine is known mm. for being the doctor of grace. Mm -hmm. And it's in this moment where he has this intellectual conversion. He realizes, no, the Platonists have it right. God is transcendent. The God of the Bible is transcendent. So how does he get to me? Mm. Uh, and Augustine has this moment in book seven where he he has a kind of uh, platonic ascent. You know, he's trying to uh, ascend to God in the way that the Platonists do, and he, but he can't do it. Uh, and he hears the voice of God saying to him, uh, you know, like, I'm going to come to you, right? Uh, and, you know, I, you, I will be the food that you need, except that when you eat me, uh, I will not be turned into you, but you into me. Right. So within the Manichaean, you had that false eating, right, where they they were uh, they, they think that they we were talking about this before. The Manichaeans thought that they could kind of help release the light from the world in the way that they ate. And right in the Eucharistic eating. It's as weird as it sounds. It is weird. But in the Eucharistic eating, right, he sees in the Eucharist the inversion of that, right? God has made himself food so that we can become him. Mm. And that's a complete inversion of pride. It's a complete inversion where God's going to come down to us uh, and God's going to bring us to himself. Uh, and so that heart moment is really matched with the head moment, you know, where he has a realization about who God is and then instantly has a revelation about who, who he is in relationship to God. So as, as Dr. Seahorn said, that intellectual conversion about who God is is not for Augustine just a set of abstract philosophical principles, although sometimes you do have to grasp abstract philosophical principles. Uh, but it really immediately becomes a concrete realization of who he is in relationship to God and that he can't live his life properly without, without those two things going together. So hopefully this episode was helpful in um, helping you work through some of those difficult books and some of those weird groups like the Manichaeans and the Platonists who you probably do not run into uh, in your everyday life, uh, but help you understand maybe how those uh, moments of intellectual conversion really help Augustine uh, come to realize who he is uh, and really help him along the way and are very important and essential and essential to us today. Uh, I also wanted to mention uh, in this episode that if you're enjoying this series and you want to go a little deeper into reading the confessions that I have done a short course on the confessions where I go through a little bit more detail, especially with the structure of the confessions that Dr. Seahorn mentioned uh, with the threefold concupiscence from uh, from First John. And so if you're interested in that, you can find that at shortcourses.augustinstitute.org and listen to me talk even longer about the confessions uh, and help you journey through that text so totally worth it <laughs> so thanks for joining us uh and i hope you come back uh for our next episode where we continue to discuss augustine's confessions you can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org formed is an online catholic streaming service created by the augustine institute and ignatius press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, ebooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustine Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.